Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hey there, Jody Vance in for Mike Smith on this very busy Tuesday. We'll have lots of time for open phones today, so get your dialing fingers ready. It's a very busy, busy program, a busy Baldry's beat as well. That's coming up in its usual spot at 10 o'clock this morning. Uh, we're going to break down those new modeling numbers that were shared at the most recent provincial health briefing. Dr. Henry went over those, uh, giving some context to our BC COVID numbers, it's very important that we are keyed in to what is happening right here in our province. Keith, Keith will uh, give us a full overview. We'll also connect with BC Green Party leader, Sonia Firstenau, uh, right after the 9.30 news today. Uh, actually, all three major parties, if you, you were listening to Mornings with Simi, Simi was letting you know all three major parties are laying out platform priorities today across the province. So we'll have a lot to cover off on very, very busy fronts, but we'll pull it all together for you right here on the program. Uh, you know what? Nothing is quite as noisy, though, as the chaos that's swirling around a COVID-19 positive president Donald Trump. Here's one of the president's latest posts after returning to the White House, uh, White House last evening. Have a listen. Don't let it dominate you. Don't be afraid of it. You're going to beat it. We have the best medical equipment. We have the best medicines, all developed recently. We have the greatest country in the world. We're going back. We're going back to work. We're going to be out front. As your leader, I had to do that. I knew there's danger to it, but I had to do it. I stood out front, I led. Nobody that's a leader would not do what I did. And I know there's a risk, there's a danger, but that's okay. And now I'm better and maybe I'm immune, I don't know. That is US President Donald Trump, uh, still test case positive for COVID-19, uh, making statements. He's made a number of videos that he has posted on his Twitter account. Uh, producer Alan Regan just sent me a note here saying uh, that he uh, found this from a New York magazine reporter who actually posted that a Twitter spokesperson has told them President Trump's Twitter account was actually locked after he shared the New York Post columnist email address at uh, and in order to unlock his account, the president had to agree to delete that tweet. So there's even more drama on Twitter with the president who's COVID-19 positive. There's a lot to unpack right here. So for his very learned perspective, we connect now with former White House correspondent, current president of Can-Am Consulting in San Diego, good friend of the program, Brian Kennedy, is on the line with us. Hi, Brian. Hey, it's nice to be with you. Good to have you because holy moly, it just... It feels like a roller coaster that doesn't even it doesn't even rest. There's no closing time here. Uh, can you just give us a your learned perspective on what you've witnessed over the last uh, few days? Just that it's hard to believe that the the debate was a week ago. It feels like a year ago. Yeah. Well, welcome to uh, U.S. politics. Uh, right. But let's just go back to Donald Trump. Uh, you know, first of all, yeah, he's out there. I guess saying this morning. Well, I had to lead. Well, if you were a real leader, you would have wore a mask, so right. you wouldn't have gotten a virus, and you would have told your your supporters to wear masks and social distance, because all of the scientists and the doctors have made it quite clear 
That is the two things that will help save American lives and will help this country fight this pandemic. And he just refuses to do so. And then to come back, you know, let's be honest, he went into the hospital last Friday and he's back home on Monday, but he's back into another hospital at the White House. They just transferred everything over from the hospital uh, back to the White House where he wants to do his videos and his tweets. Now, a lot of the, uh, the medical profession professionals that I've listened to down here on the various networks have suggested that he has COVID pneumonia. That's why he was taking a bunch of different uh, experimental drugs put into a cocktail and also taking uh, heavy doses of steroids. And his own doctor, who was less than forthcoming about his condition uh, for the past few days, has also made it clear that he'll only rest easy, the doctor, I should say, uh, when next Tuesday comes by, because they don't know if Donald Trump is out of the woods. He may think he's immune, but this virus doesn't care if you're the president or you're just an average Joe like me. Uh, it does what it does. And, uh, and, and, and Donald Trump should also look at the, uh, how the American people feel about his handling of this virus. He is in the tank. I think he's got a 26% approval rating for the handling of the virus. That's not great with only a month to go during this election for the selection campaign. So I think that he got out of the hospital because he knows he's way behind in the polls. Joe Biden has jumped over five more points. He's up like 14 or 15 percentage points across the country. He's ahead in all the battleground states. And that hasn't seemed to have changed. It's just seemed that Biden lead seems to have grown, particularly after the debate. We'll see what happens now with the president, uh, you know, with his, you know, sort of hunkered down because of uh, catching uh, the virus. But he's also a spreader. He held a big event at the White House the Saturday before last Tuesday's debate for Amy Barrett, his Supreme Court nominee. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many have caught COVID from that event. I know the president of Notre Dame did. Kellyanne Conway, his former senior aide, did. And she's now passed it on to her daughter. Uh, McElhaney, the press secretary, her two senior aides have caught the virus. There's White House staffers that have caught the virus. And, and it goes on and on. Chris Christie. Chris Christie, yep. Yeah, is in the hospital. And two U.S. senators have caught the virus from that event. So it tells me one thing, and I'm sure the American people is telling them as well, those people weren't wearing masks, they weren't social distancing, and they've now got the virus. And Donald Trump was the only one that probably, I can't say for sure, had the virus back at that time and has passed it on because whole picks where it all seems to have started from wasn't at that event. So someone there had the virus, and a lot of people are pointing at Donald Trump. So he's got a long way to go, and I don't think he's out of the woods. So I don't know why he thinks that he's immune all of a sudden and that he had to do what he had to do. If he had done it properly, uh, maybe if he had handled the virus a lot better, there's many analysts and, and scientists and doctors that said we could have saved tens of thousands of American lives if we had done something. I had a national strategy in place right off the bat. We're with Brian Kennedy, former White House correspondent, uh, current president of Can-Am Consulting in San Diego. And Brian, there's a lot that you laid out there and so many of them with little pieces of the puzzle. This is such a noisy story. One of the things with the doctors, they watching the press conferences um, from Walter Reed and, and just press gallery wanting to just simply know when did the president 
get that test that came back positive? There's an answer that just gets walked around and around and around. And it, it, it's so shocking uh, that we that's where we find ourselves in 2020, where you can't get a straight answer about something as important as that. Looking at, at this president who is clearly in the midst of the uh, of the period, uh, the gestation period, if you will, of, of what COVID-19, we've all learned that it it takes time for uh, the full impacts of the virus to be shown. It's a 14 day incubation period. And he is not even close to the 14th day at this point, uh, since his test case positive, there's a lot of concern here from a medical perspective, as well as from a political perspective, because the American people right now don't really know the truth as to just how this virus is impacting their president. Well, that's true. You know, we, we, we couldn't get a straight answer. How serious is it? The doctor said it wasn't serious. And then Mark Meadows, his chief of staff, came out and said, oh, no, it's far more serious than what people think. And then Donald Trump got mad at Mark Meadows for saying that. And so we just no one has any idea just how serious this is. But there are doctors and there, you know, and, and physicians that have been on the shows. They know the signs. And that's why they're saying it's far more serious than anybody is letting on. And they were just stunned, as I was, when he went back to the White House, where it's a hotspot of, of the virus right now. It should be quarantined, the whole house. And no one should be allowed, you know, in or out. And those people that work there should be all at home for 14 days, but that's not going to happen. But they were stunned when he got off that helicopter, Air, Air Marine One, and mm-hmm. went back to the White House. And the first thing he did was take off his mask, had someone put on makeup, and did this video. You know, I did, did a video, a campaign video. I thought, it was what are stunning. you doing? What kind of a message yeah. is that telling the country that here you are, probably far more, you know, far more serious health problems than what we know of. And you just go right back to where you were before you, we, we found out that you had the virus, that you don't care. And that you, all those people that were helping him get for that video, some of them weren't wearing masks. It's just craziness, but this is the, the, the era we're living in right now. Right. Speaking to the base, right. It's just watching that live. I was, I, I gasped. I'm like, what, to what end are you taking off that mask and, and pompously putting it in your pocket? Because he did. He looked around like, yep, I'm doing this. It was quite something to witness. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. Thanks for being along with us on this very busy Tuesday. That snap election has gotten all activations in play for all parties in our province, of course. Uh, certainly getting your ducks in a row, getting your platform sorted and out there to the people as they head to the polls. Uh, It's a very busy time, no question, but we're very glad to carve out a little bit of time with the BC Green Party leader, Sonia Firstenau, is uh, on the line with us and joining us for the next number of minutes. So very pleased to have you here, Ms. Firstenau. So pleased to be here, Jody. Thanks for having me on. I don't even know where to start, but I guess um, the Angus Reid polling that we've been referencing over the course of the morning uh, might be a good one. What do you see in those polls? Uh, I'm going to tell you, Jody, I haven't seen the polls yet. I, I get up, I focus on the work I have to do. Um, so I, I have not looked at any polls yet this morning. 
It, okay, so in Cole's Notes version, it really does show that the majority of British Columbians, 67% of British Columbians approve of how the NDP have been handling the COVID-19 uh, mm-hmm. reaction and supports to those in British Columbia. Certainly something that the Green Party uh, played a very large role in, mm-hmm. as did the Liberals, frankly. There was a lot of mm-hmm. nonpartisan pull together here in our province. Let's talk that through then. Yeah, let's. I, I'm so glad you started there, Jody, because that is the story of how BC handled COVID-19. It was a coming together of the three parties. It was putting Dr. Bonnie Henry front and center to give us a guidance uh, based on evidence and science. Uh, and, and it was the three parties recognizing that some things, like a global pandemic, should be beyond partisanship. And I'm so proud we came together on March 23rd, passed a $5 billion addition to the budget so that the government could immediately begin responding uh, to the impacts of COVID-19. We came back in the summer uh, and we, we continued to collaborate and work together and, of course, continued to hold government to account, as is our job in the legislature. Uh, but it, it really is a story of how three parties work together in the legislature and that was that story ended on september 14th when the ndp decided that they would rather put uh their political fortunes uh, ahead of the nonpartisan collaborative cooperative work that had been underway in the legislature that had been really serving the people of bc very well and the and the term putting politics behind us when calling an election seemed ironic at best. Uh, Your reaction to that has been uh, widely covered. So that leads Mm -hmm. to this question. What if a minority government were, uh, were, was to be the future for the NDP? What if, would the Greens support the NDP in a minority government again? Yeah. First of all, Jody, for me, the the real question that we have to go into all of this with and and coming out of the election, whatever the results may be. And I, I really believe a minority is the best outcome for the province, majorities deliver tend to deliver a lot of scandals, a lot of problems. Uh, minorities deliver good governance and good policy, good legislation. My focus, and I, I keep calling on the other leaders uh, to join me in this, is how do we best serve the people of British Columbia? How do we find ways, as we did in the last three and a half years, to put partisanship aside and recognize that some things, and increasingly an increasing number of things really should be beyond politics. So uh, our housing crisis, our overdose and opioid crisis, our affordability crisis, the climate crisis, uh, and COVID-19. Literally, we have to rise above and say, how do we work together, put all the best solutions on the table, and move forward with those as quickly as we can? And I've seen that happen outside of the confidence and supply agreement with the work that we did on health regulation, Norm Letnick, Adrian Dix and I, a consensus-based approach to that, sweeping recommendations for change that put public interest and public trust at the center of the work we did. We need to approach governance that way because these times are times that require of us a higher calling to our, our duty to be in service to the people of BC and not to our parties. We're with uh, BC Green Party leader Sonia Firstenau, and I was listening to you speak earlier at uh, a presser where you were really 
focused in and tuned in and what I'm hearing from you uh, just in in terms of of speaking to the political place Mm -hmm. that we are all in collectively in this province what you touch on and I think is so important is the anxiety and the Mm -hmm. stress and the depression of the people Mm -hmm. who who haven't typically had to deal with those stresses in this global pandemic in this crazy time it is really a, a difficult one to just simply go back to politics the way it's always been you're, you're so right, Jody, and, and even just you saying that, you know, you, I can feel, it, you know, my body responding to to how you're saying that, and and the reality of how significant uh, the impacts of this this year have been on all of us. I mean, we are worrying about things that we never thought we worried about. Uh, are our kids going to be safe when they go to school? Are our parents and loved ones uh, going to be safe? Are we going to be able to see them? Can I connect with my friends and community? How do I know that my neighbor is doing okay? How do I know that the small business that I love so much uh, in my community is going to make it? And that's one of the things that, you know, yesterday's news about the, the, the grant money not flowing to small businesses and medium-sized businesses because of this election, it makes me very frustrated, very disappointed uh, that this is where we're at. We should be in the legislature right now. We should be making sure that, that those small and medium-sized businesses are getting the support they need right now. We should be making sure that people are getting the mental health supports, that our schools are safe. Like, we have a lot of work to be doing right now, um, and we don't need to be in this election. We are, and that's, that's how it is. But I am disappointed, uh, and I think, you know, British Columbians really need to recognize that um, it's not healthy to give all the power the one person and one party uh, in a governing situation like this, and particularly when that party has demonstrated very clearly that what they want is more power and less accountability at a time when we've shown, we've demonstrated so clearly that working across party lines has actually been better for British Columbians. So the answer to my original question, would the BC Greens support the NDP in a minority government is yes. Well, my, the answer to your question is what the BC Greens will focus on is how do we best serve British Columbians? And I, I, I say this a lot in this campaign. We need to expand our imagination on so many things and look at other jurisdictions, New Zealand, Scandinavia, a lot of Northern European countries where minority governments are the norm uh, because they actually have a proportional representation system. Uh, and they learn how they, they work out how to govern across all sorts of party lines with the focus on best serving the people. And those are also the countries, a lot of them women-led, um, that have navigated COVID-19 uh, very well, that are navigating the economic recovery piece very well. Because, and this is what I would say about us that's very different from the other two parties, we are focused on health and well-being at the center of every policy every platform piece that we're bringing forward and if we if we focus on that and then measure outcomes based on is this contributing to the health and well-being of the people and our communities our society are we sustainable are we are we all able to meet our full potential are we able to thrive then we start seeing real progress in terms of people's day-to-day lives. And that's what's so important to me. It sounds fascinating to me listening to you speak. And I had the opportunity this weekend to speak with Annamie Paul, the Mm -hmm. new federal leader of the Green Party, and had the chance to 
talk with uh, Ms. Paul about the fact that so many people in this country who maybe don't go as deeply into politics as some of us mm-hmm. think Green Party is all about just climate only. Mm-hmm. And what you just said is is a big piece of this. I mean, looking at your constituency work, your child mm-hmm. wellness, your infrastructure mm-hmm. and health, you're supporting First Nations leadership, you're, you're, you're working on fixing the problem that clearly mm-hmm. is systemic here in terms of extreme poverty, and you have background as a teacher. So mm-hmm. you, you bring a lot to the table here. At, on that teacher piece, if I may, mm-hmm. what do you say to the teachers who are incredibly stressed out about mm-hmm. face-to-face, in-class, back-to-school right now? First of all, I say I understand where you're at. I, I'm so, I feel so much empathy uh, for teachers right now for support staff, EAs, uh, and for kids and families that are are feeling stress. And we are hearing about uh, COVID cases in schools. And of course, that that makes us all feel more anxiety. And and again, when we think about education in this province, I think we have to ask ourselves a question like, where do we want to be? Where do we want to go? What does it look like when every teacher and every child feels like they're getting their needs met in our public mm-hmm. education system? How do we move away from this feeling of scarcity that comes out of the years of austerity in our public education system and we move to a place where we we feel like our needs are met and then we can just thrive. We can take those risks. We can, you know, be excited about learning. We can be excited about innovation in our teaching and 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 move forward into this this new world we're in and really know that we are preparing children and youth to be at their very best as they become the future leaders and entrepreneurs and uh, community builders in our province and I think that's what I want to feel more of is that sense of I'm excited about the future. I feel hopeful about the future. And the the place to build that is in our education system, starting from the earliest years and going right through to post-secondary and graduate. Well, I thank you for that. I want to ask you one quick added question here in terms of it's just coming in because Richard Zussman is reporting the BC Liberal government now saying they will officially end the ICBC monopoly, uh, opening up the automobile insurance market to competition from the private market if they are able to win the Premier's office. Your thoughts on that? Oh, for goodness sake. I mean, you know, this is why I'm so tired of how we've done politics in this province. And this is what we talked about in the pro-rep campaign. You have this swing from one way to a swing to the other. We spend more time dismantling the work that's been done by a previous government than we do on building on it. We supported the ICBC shift to a care-based model because it does put health and well-being uh, at the center of it. And, And imagine in a time like this, in this pandemic, when we need to focus on COVID recovery, uh, economic recovery, health and well-being, that uh, the Liberals are saying, well, we're just going to go in and start undoing all the work of the last government and start again from scratch. I just, I need to see, I'm hoping to see more leadership about a vision for the future from the other leaders. But in the meantime, that's what I'm focused on, is a a health and well-being future for this province, uh, a place where everybody can meet their potential and thrive, where every community has that sustainable existence, where we know that we have clean water, clean air, a good economy, locally driven, uh, and where we can raise our kids to feel hopeful about their future. 
BC Green Party leader Sonia Furstenau. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Jody. What a pleasure. Talk to you soon. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. Always look forward to 10 a.m. when I fill in on this program because it means I get to hang out with one of the best in the business. Baldry's Beat. Keith Baldry is with us, our Global BC Legislative Bureau Chief. Hey, Keith. Good morning, Jody. Just another slow news day for us here. (laughs) (laughs) Things are rolling in at quite the clip. I do want to get to uh, the modeling that uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry laid out yesterday in the press briefing with you because you have... You have a way of extrapolating the numbers that I think people really truly need to hear. But we have some breaking news coming in uh, with the BC Liberal leader in Andrew Wilkinson saying that uh, the Liberal government, if if elected, would officially end the ICBC monopoly and open up to private mm-hmm. insurance. And then we've got this from Rob Shaw just moved on Twitter as well, that the NDP platform has up to $1,000 in cash for households with under $125,000 in income and sliding scales and a rent freeze and transit passes for kids. There's just a lot of a lot of gifts going on in the announcements today. What do you, what's your take on all of this? Yeah, it's amazing how often Wilkinson and Horgan have have their time their announcements at exactly the same moment. Almost, it's uh, in in regular times. You know, you have a campaign, <clears throat> you're on the campaign bus, you have campaign events, and they're sort of staggered throughout the day. And the leaders usually have um, different uh, announcements at different times of the day, but because we're in this situation where there's really no campaign, everything's done around 10 o'clock and that's it. Uh, and both leaders sort of stand down. Um, and that's what we're seeing now. So Wilkinson first off, off the bat today, a little earlier than Horgan, uh, announcing that <clears throat> uh, private insurers would be invited to compete with ICBC or ICBC being told to compete with private insurers. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, ICBC is a live political football. It's not the most popular uh, corporation right now. and It's it's a fodder for political promises. So the Liberals trying to take advantage of that. The NDP today, as you mentioned, a $1,000 um, a re- a check, basically, to uh, people earning a certain level of money to cope through the pandemic. Uh, free transit for any kid under the age of 12. Um, and ongoing measures that have already been announced. I think I think there's a, probably about six dozen new things mentioned by John Horgan today, of various shapes and sizes. Uh, so that's the NDP platform. But you know, uh, despite all the noise out there that these two leaders and and sort of um, erupt on a daily basis, I still think most of the electorate is really not paying a lot of attention right now. Uh, just it's, it's an election campaign that's not an election campaign. And it's tough to get energized about it. So they're making their pitches, but I don't get the impression the public is necessarily paying a lot of attention. And indeed, an Angus Reid poll out today shows the public opinion is just sort of blah. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's there. It's not moving. Uh, it's still a big gap between the NDP and the Liberals. And most of the electorate is simply not engaged in this thing. You know, I listen to Baldry's Beat every day. I follow you on Twitter, at Keith Baldry on Twitter, an absolute must for anybody on that platform. And Keith, there's, it, it fascinates me because you said it off the hop when this snap election was called, or even when there were rumors about it, you had said the interling, internal polling numbers had to be astronomical mm-hmm. Yeah, in order for this to be called. So it's no surprise that nothing's really moving the meter here. No, I think people are locked in to the fact that we're in an extraordinary crisis and politics seems to be sort of a uh, afterthought and a, and almost a, an abstract, meaningless thing for people in their daily lives. They don't really care about campaigns and, and what politicians have to say. They're struggling to get through this thing. So 
So many people mm-hmm. are unemployed. So many businesses are teetering on the edge. Uh, people are consumed by what's going on. Uh, it, you know, parents in schools. You know, I'm getting tons of of, of communications from parents in schools who are really hyper vigilant of what's going on in their school uh, in terms of COVID-19. Uh, and, the, and when an election campaign comes sort of knocking by the door, it, they're like, what, what, I don't need this right now. You know, I've got enough going on in my life without worrying about this type of thing. And that's a very hard thing for a non-government party to penetrate. And this is why I think the BC Liberals and the BC Greens are having so much trouble right now, is piercing that that cloak that people have around themselves right now of, of not caring about politics, but just caring about struggling to survive this pandemic. And I think John Horgan and NDP have got pretty high marks from people for how they've, be, how they've managed this thing and how they've behaved since this began. And that continues to be the case. And this is why it's a, it's a struggle for the Liberals and the Greens to, to sort of enter that conversation on the same level. Now let's do the pivot to the COVID-19 numbers, the modeling. Uh, Yesterday's press briefing had a lot that needed to be unpacked. And it begins with what I think is one of the most salient tweets that you consistently put out there is how this virus is not going anywhere anytime soon. And we are in a position now where we must be thoughtful and, and active in managing and mitigating it. Yes. So this is the message again from Dr. Ronnie Henry and other public health officers. Get your heads around the fact that this this virus is out there. It's not disappearing. It's not like you can get rid of it by spraying something on it or something like that. It's part of our lives. It's part of our community. And you have to learn to manage it and, and as you say, mitigate it. And, and that particularly applies to different situations, particularly schools. And it was interesting yesterday, the modeling that came out, and, and not just modeling, the statistics that came out that I think we have something like 2,000 schools and there are 50 uh, cases, uh, positive cases in terms of um, numbers in schools since, since uh, schools reopened, which is a very small, small number. Uh, and again, the, one of the interesting, most interesting slides that came out of the modeling yesterday is our reproductive rate, which is the R number, which is really yes. important. That's the number of people, if, you, if you've got COVID, how many people do you infect? And, the, and the, the goal is to keep that under one, and we're under one. And very few jurisdictions can, can boast that. Uh, a lot of them are, are much higher than that. We were over one for, I think, some point in the summer in August, but we're now under one, and that's very encouraging news. And the, you know, Bonnie Henry, I've come to know, is not the most optimistic person all the time. She's very much taking the the negative view or the, the pessimistic view sometimes of what lies ahead. But yesterday was very encouraging in that she's, she and her team are looking forward into the fall and winter when we hit into respiratory season and think because of all the measures we've enacted, which is our, you know keeping your social distance, uh, closing nightclubs, um, making sure restaurants follow the rules and bars, cutting off liquor, uh, at a certain time, all these things in their totality have reduced our our connections in terms of infectious potential to forty five percent of what of what is normal as a result, the prediction and modeling is that we will bend the curve in the fall in the winter, even with the onset of, of respiratory illness season and flu. And that's very encouraging. And that's never been, she's never said that before. I think that was lost on a lot of people yesterday. That's the first time 
she is predicted that going into the fall and the respiratory season, we will bend the curve because of all these measures we're taking. And that's very heartening. It is very heartening. I, my son and I were watching together and I jumped out of my chair. I was like, oh my God, that's such good news. And But it's tempered with the good news being that what we are doing is working. So we have to keep doing what we're doing that keeping that 45% connections because we've seen those those graphs where we increase those connections and the surge mm-hmm. picks yeah. back up we, we could easily be Quebec we could easily be Ontario but we're not we're BC because we're pulling this around and one of the things as a mother of a 12 year old who has just started high school I say it all the time when when you see the fear when you see the fear mongering I'm going to call it even fear mongering because people are like school cases are surging it's like no. No, they're not. No, they're not. No, they're not. And um, I think there's a bit of um, yeah, fear-mongering, a bit of hysteria sometimes when you see one case test positive and you think it, it affects so many people around that person. That's not how this works. And it's, uh, it, it, it's hardening to see the projections and the predictions from the public health team. It's not just Dr. Bonnie Henry, but she's got a lot of people working with her. That is a result mm. of all these measures. Um, it's going to be positive. But it's also a reminder, these measures are not going to end. I get emails all the time from people saying, when can we start having you know, groups of more than 50? When can we open up the nightclubs? When can we you know, have uh, spectators at a junior hockey game? And the message, again, reinforced yesterday, not for a long time. These measures are going to be in place for a long time. And, uh, you know, as Dr. Henry says, it's not forever, but it is for now. Well, for now means a long time. And that means mm-hmm. um, no gatherings, no parties, nothing like that. In fact, the, if you drill down to the Halloween guidelines, don't trick-or-treat in, more than, in groups of more than six people. Jody Vanson for Mike Smith. Glad to have you along on this busy, busy Tuesday. Eight o'clock this morning, got a release from the city of Vancouver from Mayor Kennedy Stewart saying that Mayor Stewart is calling for bold action on homelessness with $30 million in emergency COVID-19 funding, funding that would create hundreds of new units with wraparound services to help house vulnerable neighbors and stabilize communities. Under the stabilized community heading, uh, we can just plug in Strathcona there, 400 tents and counting. A neighborhood experiencing heightened anxiety doesn't even begin to cover. People living in poverty with nowhere to go on the other side of that equation. So City Hall considering solutions to address the ever-growing encampment at Strathcona Park. Let's connect now with someone very much deep in this, um, living it on a daily basis, really. Katie Lewis, who is the vice president of the Strathcona Residents Association, is here to talk through some of what is being considered by City Hall. Katie, it is really good to talk to you again. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Jenny. Nice to be here. So when you heard or read about uh, the the action City Hall is planning to take, what, what were your first reactions? Honestly, I'm a little bit disappointed um, because I feel like it's not dealing with anything immediately. It's we, we, we will still be months off um, having any of these whatever kind of um, hotels or whatever SROs they buy. Uh, we, we're, we're still months away. Um, so, you know, I, uh, not well, urgent I agree. Enough. It's not urgent enough. And we need urgency because the situation is escalating every single day. Um, and we know that police are very concerned with what's going on in the park. Um, but we also know that winter's coming. And, and the thought of, you know, the entire camp having to stay out there for the winter is, is very troubling. Um, we know that fire risk goes up. People need to stay warm in their tents. 
um, but we we um, we need an immediate action, um, and that's why we've been working with some other counselors on that, and we're hopeful to see that as well on Thursday. Haven't talked to you uh, for a while uh, on the subject of sort of what the ex- escalation has been like at the camp in Strathcona Park. When last you and I had an opportunity to speak, you had just had somebody try and break into your house while you were home and you were terrified. Um, what is the tension like around the park? You know, fast forward a few weeks here. Yeah. And, you know, I, I want to highlight that my experience is not unique. And, you know, I have many, many neighbors that have had similar experiences. So, I think collectively that Strathcona is quite traumatized um, as a result of what has happened over the last 113 days. In the last two weeks alone, we had a man try to pull a live chainsaw and try to kill several residents. Um, We had a shooting in the park. We had a number of children threatened, um, you know, a number of robberies. It's just never ending. um, And we're really concerned that someone's going to die, quite frankly. And those people who are living rough, as they call it, you know, living on the edge, no place to go, the people who are truly struggling in poverty are surrounded by some of these bad actors, because not every person in this camp is looking to rob or harm their fellow citizens. It's the desperation piece, and it attracts the crime element, right, Katie? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I've, I've spoken to many campers who are, you know, they are being preyed upon. You know, and we hear that there's about 200 campers um, in the camp that are genuinely homeless. However, there's probably about 400 to 500 people there. So we have to ask ourselves, who is making up the other part of that camp? Um, And, you know, there is certainly a selection of people um, that are activists and and a pretty large portion of them. Um, And there there are, you know, criminals there that are, are simply there because they can operate in uh, basically an autonomous zone right now. And, And we feel that's super unacceptable. I mean, we know that there's already, there is a gun from the other shooting that the police didn't recover. So we know there are guns around, you know, there was a semi-automatic rifle found uh, several weeks ago, um, but uh, loaded in an alley with the safety off. You know, a kid could have picked that up. So, you know, we feel that residents aren't safe. Campers aren't safe either. And, but something needs to be done immediately to deal with this situation. And what does immediately look like? I mean, I heard Bruce Allen's reality check earlier today, just as I was coming on to fill in here on the Mike Smith show. And I heard Bruce talking about how there's um, some counselors who are saying, you know, let's use the parkades. Let's do 40 person camps around the town to disperse these 400 campers in Strathcona Park. Does spreading out the problem fix it in any way? You know, I do actually think there is ben- there is benefit in spreading out the problem, you know, and You know, we've heard from city councillors that there is an intent to perhaps um, use some of the winter shelter spaces um, or spaces that were set aside for a a potential second wave of COVID in that we could Mm. set up a disaster relief shelter right now. Um, And those could get up and running quite quickly. Um, But in terms of spacing people out, um, you know, there are people that don't necessarily want to be by the downtown east side. Maybe they're trying to get clean. I've spoken to people like this. You know, and, and they're stuck in this cycle, um, whereas where, you know, they're kind of in this location. Um, but I, you know, and I also believe that it shouldn't be Strathcona's burden um, to take the majority of all of most of the homeless people in Vancouver. You know, we're a really small, tight knit community, um, you know, with lots of seniors, lots of families, lots of people on social assistance. 
Um, you know, and our, our diversity is our strength, but it's just too out of control and it's too much for one community to bear. Oh, that is a great statement. It is just simply too much for one community to bear. And where is the help? And we've heard from people who are very engaged and and activated on the downtown east side when it comes to supporting those who are living in poverty. And they're pointing to, it was Sarah Blythe who had tweeted uh, out um, about the fact that the SROs have been closed for ages, that those decrepit buildings that have been allowed to go to disrepair, the places and spaces that are created for people who, who have very little, if not nothing, to have a roof over their head. And we have hundreds of spaces that are not being used because of those slumlords leaving them to become these decrepit spaces in the downtown east side. So there are so many pieces to this puzzle. And certainly you have been a champion of of trying to find what works for all here. And, you know, we had a, we held a protest um, last Tuesday um, in, in support of finding safe homes for everyone. You know, and it was a very inclusive message for a reason. Um, we had spoken to campers and we had invited them months before. We'd had multiple meetings um, and a number of campers did show up. Um, but the day of the protest, um, I guess some of the activists decided that they didn't want to be a part of it. And um, and they, they told the campers not to come. Um, and then Chrissy Brett, one of the camp organizers, ended up getting arrested and a number of activists came out and yelled at children who were simply there as part of a, you know, they were trying to support their community and trying to support campers. And, and that I'm having a real problem with. Um, and the activists continue seem to be ratcheting up and it's like, no matter what we do, we're always painted as the enemy. And, and that's certainly not our intent. Um, and it's really disappointing. When was that uh, protest where Chrissy Brett was arrested? Uh, so that was um, Tuesday, last Tuesday. Okay. Yeah. That's unfortunate. And like directing, yeah. directing people to not come to the table to yeah. have the conversation, to find some solutions that can be agreed upon by everybody involved. Uh, how else does this get resolved without doing yeah. that? And, you know, I spent hundreds of hours at that park um, trying to be diplomatic, trying to negotiate, yeah. trying to figure out what they need and seeing what I can do. Um, but I feel like at this point, um, I feel like they are preying on the on the people that are genuinely in need there. Um, and um, I don't like to use this word, but they are poverty pimping and it is unacceptable. Well, we hear you and we're glad that your voice is is at the forefront of the Strathcona Residents Association because you make yourself available and clearly vulnerable. Katie, I know this is very emotional for you and I appreciate you being uh, as brave as you are to really put yourself out there and say how you feel on behalf of the residents in Strathcona. Well, thank you so much. And you know, the trolls, trolls keep getting at me, but I'm sure they're getting at everyone these days. So, oh but, yeah, no, just don't know. feed the trolls. Just don't feed the trolls, Katie. It's okay. Exactly. They're proving themselves wrong just in doing that to you. Stay strong and we're here for you. Appreciate your Thanks time so today. Much. Thanks so much. Thanks, Cheers. The BC Liberal government will remove the monopoly for ICBC. We'll open up the auto insurance market to competition for all forms of auto insurance so that we can get competition and people can shop around for the rate that best suits them and the coverage that best suits them. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. And of course, you can uh, recognize the voice of the B.C. Liberal Party leader, Andrew Wilkinson, party platforms rolling out today across the province. And that one right there is a big headline grabber. Uh, The B.C. Liberals promised to, quote, end the ICBC monopoly by opening up auto insurance to competition on the private market. So 
Earlier on today's show here, we had BC Green Party leader Sonia Furstenau on just as that news broke. Here's her reaction. Oh, for goodness sake. I mean, you know, this is why I'm so tired of how we've done politics in this province. And this is what we talked about in the pro-rep campaign. You have this swing from one way to a swing to the other. We spend more time dismantling the work that's been done by a previous government than we do on building on it. We supported the ICBC shift to a care-based model because it does put health and well-being at the center of it. And, And imagine in a time like this, in this pandemic, when we need to focus on COVID recovery, uh, economic recovery, health and well-being, that uh, the Liberals are saying, well, we're just going to go in and start undoing all the work of the last government and start again from scratch. I just, I need to see, I'm hoping to see more leadership about a vision for the future. Again, that is BC Green Party leader Sonia know earlier here on the Mike Smith Show. Now, what might all of this mean to the employees? at ICBC. Are we all not stressed enough? They must be feeling it. To talk that through, we connect with the Vice President of Move Up, the union that represents those workers. Thank you so much for joining us, Annette Toth. Hi. Thanks for having me on. How did you consume the news this morning, that that press announcement? Well, uh, I'll be honest, I don't think we were really surprised. I mean, these kind of announcements just show uh, his level of desperation. Uh, for Andrew Wilkinson, uh, and and frankly, uh, with zero uh, thought about what this actually means, uh, because his announcement essentially is uh, putting at risk over six thousand direct jobs in BC, and not to mention uh, many uh, tens of thousands of other indirect jobs. Uh, because what he's talking about, what he really wants to do, is line the pockets of wealthy, already wealthy CEOs in Toronto, in New York, in Hartford, and even as far away as the UK. Uh, because everything he says, every dime will be going to these CEOs out of our province, and, and for the most part, even right out of our country. So it's no surprise, certainly no surprise for the workers. Uh, they've heard this song and dance from the Liberals before. Uh, they've watched it for 16 years when they worked there as they tried to dismantle and, just, and, and gut the insides of ICBC. And that's the part, Annette, that many people uh, reflect upon. I mean, when the NDP took over uh, the Premier's office uh, with the Green Party, obviously, um, the, the, one of the first notes that came out of that office was the dumpster fire. How difficult must it be for your workers, for ICBC workers, to have been sort of at the center of this at no fault of their own, pardon the pun? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, 16 years uh, with the Liberals, and by the way, Andrew Wilkinson was in cabinet uh, with all the decisions. Uh, they they chose to keep ICBC. Why? Because they knew from their own research it was very efficient and it was a good product to keep. But what they did was they stripped out all the things that um, that frankly people liked about ICBC beyond just the car insurance part. Uh, they they took out all of the ability for ICBC to help with road improvements. Uh, that's been gutted right down. Uh, all of the public uh, stuff that they helped uh, with uh, road safety and public safety and children. And uh, there was so many things that they did. And the Liberals gutted that. Um, and, and in fact, actually commissioned their own report uh, that said, the work that's being done now by the NDP must be done. And that was in 2013. Uh, they just ignored their own report. 
uh, pretended that it didn't happen, uh, tore out their own pages of their own report and left it to uh, create a mess. So it's the height of complete hubris that Andrew Wilkinson now is uh, saying that this has to go when he took as a liberal uh, $1.2 billion out of ICBC that was needed for claims and for looking after people and put it into general revenue so they could say, oh, look, aren't we awesome? We've balanced our budgets. No, they balance their budgets off of the backs of uh, BC motorists. And now what they want to do is uh, do a Hail Mary and throw... Uh, say, oh, here, we'll, uh, we're going to uh, bring in a privatized system like they have in Alberta and Ontario. And, uh, you know, they'll try and tell you that it's more expensive. It isn't. That's absolutely not true. Uh, public auto insurance across this country is the cheapest models, and BC is one of those models. We are far cheaper than any private system that you can have because there's the profit margins that's a for-profit system just isn't there. We're with Annette Toth, the vice president of Move Up, the union that represents ICBC workers. I think right off the top, what you said, Annette, is so uh, poignant in that it's 6,000 jobs across this province that are so easily sort of talked over, I guess. And then you point out how the, the, private, the private companies that would come in place theoretically, of ICBC, uh, wouldn't necessarily reflect revenue dollars back into the BC coffers. No, absolutely. They won't need to do uh, anything other than just take your money. They won't need to hire people here. They won't need to have uh, people answering your phones because they've already got those offshore uh, with people answering phones. They won't have somebody come and look at your car locally. Uh, They'll have, uh, they'll send it, they'll have, send it out or they'll ask you to send in your own information and uh, and hope that uh, your photos are good enough that your claim will be accepted. It is so complicated and it depends on who you ask, hey, Annette, with who wants Absolutely. what. Because there there is the fact on the table here. We hear the stories. We just had Janet Brown, our uh, one of our senior reporters here at CKNW, was saying about her neighbor who needs to get to school at UBC and has to pay $4,800. This 18-year-old woman has to pay $4,800 to insure her car. I mean, there's no doubt that the costs associated here are outrageous, but that's not the fault of the ICBC employee who seems to be punished here. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, it's interesting that you're, uh, you're talking about, I'm assuming that this is a, is a young driver. Uh, Nothing that Andrew Wilkinson has talked about or is announcing here will actually do anything to help young and inexperienced drivers, like absolutely nothing. In fact, if we go with his model, it will be worse for young drivers. They'll be paying for uh, more, they'll have to pay for more. Their costs will be far higher. And anybody that's in a private insurance system, uh, they're paying often well over $10,000 a year for their car insurance if they can get car insurance, which most insurance companies just aren't even interested in insuring young people and, and new drivers. Or and someone who's had an accident, even, whether it's their fault or, their, or not. You've been in an accident, try and get insurance. Yeah. Yep. Even, yeah. even if you had a glass claim that's not your fault because you had a rock right. uh, come up off a road and uh, chip your window, uh, the private insurance companies will mid-policy just cancel your policy. They don't want to insure you anymore. But I think that wow. what pu- the public don't even realize is that if you're a young driver and you're a young male driver, you'll pay even more because the private insurance companies use discriminatory pricing models. 
Public mm-hmm. systems don't, and they don't ever do discriminatory pricing. Annette, thank you so much for taking some time out for us today. I really appreciate no your problem. perspective. No problem. Thank you, Jody, for having me on. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith, and boy, oh boy, has it been a busy morning for, well, all political parties in British Columbia, certainly, but for the BC NDP leader, John Horgan, a press conference with a lot to announce on his party's platform for the upcoming provincial election. Here are the main sort of media items. Have a listen. Our plan provides a one-time $1,000 recovery benefit to help families and $500 for individuals. We'll make life more affordable by freezing rents into 2021 and capping rent increases to the cost of inflation. We'll also help uh, families with children by expanding our $10 a day childcare plan and ensuring that transit is free for kids under 12. Lots of goodies there to discuss. But when it comes to the, the cash coming in, those direct deposits, how, how will that go down? Have a listen. The package will cost about $1.4 billion, and that's putting dollars right into the pockets of those families that need it the most. This is for people with a family income of $125,000 or individuals with an income of about $62,500 a year. I believe those are the people that are struggling right now. Those are the people that need to have those extra dollars to make sure that they can get by, not just through this pandemic, but into the recovery period. I think this is a good investment in people. They'll, they'll, they'll not put this in tax havens in the Grand Caymans, like uh, uh, those that are get, looking at BC Liberal tax cut proposals. They'll put this money right back into the community, investing in small businesses, making purchases that will stimulate other economic activity. All right. That, of course, is the BC NDP leader, John Horgan. Uh, Joining us on the line is the NDP candidate for Vancouver Fairview, George Heyman. Hello, Mr. Heyman. Thanks for doing this. Good morning, Jody. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I want to talk this through and sort of cost it out a little bit because, I mean, we're all sort of numb to the spending in this unprecedented time as we almost daily talk about millions and and even billions of dollars and and supports and trying to help people through this. Can you sort of lay out that up to $1,000 in cash for households uh, with uh, earnings under $125,000 incomes? What's the sliding scale? What just lay it out in, in layman's terms, if you wouldn't mind. Well, for for a family uh, earning up to one hundred and twenty five thousand, they'll get the flat one thousand, and then it will be uh, phased out on a sliding scale up to family incomes of one hundred and seventy five. For an individual, it's five hundred uh, up to uh, sixty two and a half thousand a year, and a sliding scale phasing out at eighty seven thousand. But I think the key here is. Uh, we saw the the BC Liberals and Andrew Wilkinson announce a, a broad-based uh, PST cut that would have uh, blown a $8 billion hole with one measure alone in uh, in the provincial budget, and he couldn't even cost it right. Uh, and what it would have given was uh, for people in the top 1% who wanted to go out and buy a yacht, and I've heard people talking about how great this would be, that's like a $70,000 gift. So we're targeting um, all of the measures that we have in our platform uh, to families, to uh, to regular people, to individuals. And as uh, people are better off and need less help, it'll be phased out so that we have more money for the services that everybody depends on, like better health care, child care, uh, transit uh, and training of, uh, of young people and people whose jobs have been negatively impacted by COVID. 
I want to get to the the transit and the training piece for sure. But I mean, it's music to the ears of many struggling British Columbians when you talk about a rent freeze until 2021. How can we afford to to implement a program like that? How do you how do you mandate that? Well, what we can't afford is for uh, people to be thrown out on the street or uh, to be moving or, or trying to transfer homes at, at a time of uh, minimized social contact to prevent uh, the transmission of COVID. Uh, we uh, earlier capped uh, rent increases to the cost of living, and we've said that to help British Columbians, we're going to freeze rents till uh, the end of 2021, and then we'll go back to the cost of living increase. Uh, uh, Andrew Wilkinson has said uh, he's had no interest in uh, a cap on uh, rents at all. And under the previous 16 years of the Liberal government, I regularly met with people in uh, my constituency who are facing rent increases of up to 30%, uh, 35%, or simply being uh, rent evicted. Uh, we need to protect people's homes. That's the start. And then we need to ensure that we're supporting people with the services they need and a good livelihood. We're with George Heyman, who's the NDP candidate for a Vancouver Fairview. Now, without bringing up what the Liberals are trying to spend in terms of tax dollars, um, when you say costing out, costing out the things that are being proposed by the BC NDP, it is a $1.4 billion uh, piece of this puzzle that just over a month ago was not part of the plan. Were any of these things sort of held off till now, knowing internally that you were headed into this snap election? No, absolutely not. Uh, we spent the, the months of the pandemic looking at every measure we could put in place to help people. We gave an enhanced low and middle income climate action tax credit. Uh, we uh, protected people and slow small businesses from evictions. And, you know, we're all having to uh, we're all having to deal with this as we go along. We, we took some time to plan the economic recovery measures. We we passed them through Treasury Board and the public service is now implementing them, including uh, $660 million in, uh, in uh, tax um, measures that help small business and uh, tax credits to help small business hire more people. Uh, these are the kind of things that people need. Uh, we're in good shape in BC because we uh, continued uh, for three years not only to balance our budgets, but to recalibrate our priorities and invest in education, in childcare, in urgent and primary care centers, in uh, better long-term care to support people with the services they need. We have a, a capital plan that's finally investing in transit and new schools and new hospitals after 16 years of neglect. That's what people need. But because of the strength of our uh, our budget, we are in a position to run uh, this uh, deficit in extraordinary circumstances. Every jurisdiction in the Western world is having to run deficits. Everybody understands the need for that. But because we were in good shape to begin with, our credit rating remains strong and the cost of borrowing remains low. And we're able to give people in British Columbia what they need to support them to get them through this pandemic together. I'm certainly no expert when it comes to where the money goes from one pot to the other. Um, but when you throw down free transit passes for kids up to the age of 12, there are a lot of people that that is a huge relief for. But an already stressed out, underfunded transit system that has been starved during this pandemic. How does that work out? Like, Because we hear on one hand that transit is struggling so mightily uh, and in, in crisis mode. And then... Uh, here's more money being taken out of their coffers uh, f for very good reason. So I, I'm, I just need it explained to me, if you don't mind. Well, 
I think uh, there's two issues here. One is supporting families and kids and uh, and then ensuring that the transit system is well funded and we expand it as needed. So, uh, And we've committed to expanding SkyTrain uh, uh, out to Langley uh, from Surrey as well as um, some rapid bus and, and light rail. We're funding the Broadway corridor along uh, through the, the riding I'm running in, which is one of the most congested areas in uh, BC. And we're uh, looking forward to working with the mayors on eventually getting out to UBC. But if we get young people um, used to taking transit, and uh, and that's an important measure of what they'll do in the future, we want more people on transit. When we have more people taking transit, uh, and when people are used to taking it, they'll continue to ride it uh, into their teens and, uh, and young adulthood and on. That means less money spent on uh, roads, and that means savings for uh, for people, so I believe ultimately, in the long term, it's good support for transit, and it's a good use of government money to to support programs like this one. Well, you just piqued me there a little bit on the infrastructure piece, on the good on the roads, because we need goods and services to be moved on those roads. They can't be moved on transit. So, I mean, there there is that piece of this that that overall, you know, large large picture. When we're when we're looking at what the the BC Liberals just announced today in terms of ICBC and wanting to privatize that, what does the NDP say to uh, that? And what we are hearing about the rebates uh, for the savings that have occurred over the course of this pandemic, what um, what David Eby had announced the other day? Well, Andrew Wilkinson is simply misleading British Columbians. Uh, First of all, British Columbians have optional insurance over the basic, but we've had ICBC to ensure that uh, that people could afford basic insurance, and we're still cheaper than other provinces. But the Liberals have opposed our plan that would save families uh, or a car owner $400 a year or 20% on their insurance. They've said they don't want to do that. They'd rather privatize it so that uh, people who are insuring their automobiles can face the same kind of extraordinary uh, insurance increases that uh, people who live in uh, condos and stratas are now facing. Uh, We are fixing ICBC and the Liberals are opposing that fix that will save British Columbians money. I have to tell you, though, I lived in Ontario for 10 years, and I paid so much less for my auto insurance than I do here in British Columbia. As a born and raised Vancouverite, ICBC has been a part of my life uh, for a very long time. And and when people say it doesn't cost less elsewhere, I have to point out that, in my experience, it absolutely does cost less elsewhere. Well, the point I was making, Andrew Wilkinson said we have the most expensive in Canada. Uh, That's not true, and it's Ah. about to get 20% cheaper. And I think that is a benefit that all British Columbians want. Uh, in fact, people I'm, have been clamoring uh, for us to deal with the uh, rising cost of condo insurance, and um, and we will deal with that. And if the industry doesn't uh, deal with that, we'll look at ensuring that uh, that we have a public option that will support uh, homeowners. Okay, I like that, because the strata insurance has so many people stressed out, certainly in your constituency, as you said, a very dense area there in Vancouver Fairview. But, uh, you know, the pivot from the ICBC piece, there has not been relief over these past three years for the average Joe middle income earner when it's two grand or more to insure your car. So there's that that promise from the BC Liberals makes some Really, our phone lines lit up in the in the segment prior to you coming on here, sir. And it was it was quite something. It was overwhelmingly said that British Columbians are tired of ICBC as it has been. What do you say to to those voters? 
Well, I'd remind people that uh, for 16 years, uh, the B.C. Liberals and Andrew Wilkinson was uh, part of that government. He sat at the cabinet table. They raided ICBC in order to uh, take money that should have gone into reducing and stabilizing rates so they could claim they balanced the budget, and they left a mess behind. Uh, We've started to uh, fix that mess. David Eby has worked hard on it. In the last year, we we held ICBC rates flat, and in May, there is going to be a 20% reduction and it will be prorated for people who already bought their insurance for a year so they'll get the benefit uh, for the remainder of that year effective in may in addition any savings during the covid uh, crisis from uh, fewer um, accidents because of uh, less driving will be given back uh, to icbc policyholders and i I think that's uh, that's an important step forward i think the liberals have no credibility on this they created the mess and as they said they needed to privatize a number of uh, public services like long-term care in the past we've seen the result of that we saw people die in long-term care homes because we had underpaid workers who had to work in several places. The solution is not to make a mess and then claim somebody else can clean it up. The solution is to clean it up and offer good, affordable options to British Columbians. That's exactly what we're proposing to do with our platform. Very many British Columbians right now looking forward to getting their money back on the ICBC rebate there. Thank you very much for your time, Mr. Heyman. As always, a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you very much.